Good morning. How grace, God's grace, affects our lives is, is a miracle. And it's because of his grace that we have been given the miracle of the gospel and the impact it has on so many saints. We'll talk about that here in a second. But before we do, I just want to say that it's weird sitting over there. <laughs> it's a totally different perspective. I sat over there for years, and so hopefully lightning doesn't strike, but <laughs> we'll see. also just want to say it's nice to, nice to see everyone, and it's nice to be here. And I, I really do mean that. It is such a blessing to be able to come together with one heart, mind, and spirit and worship God. I also want to welcome the, vis- the visitors here, and I also want to welcome those that are watching on Facebook and YouTube as well. Titus 2 is where we're going to start. Titus 2. I'll have some scriptures before Titus 2, but Titus 2 is the main passage that we'll start with this morning. I also want to introduce Nate's lesson here uh, tonight uh, out of Romans 14. It is titled, Putting Peace into Practice. I think that's very unique, putting peace into practice. I look forward to hearing what he has to say about that. And we are coming up on the home stretch of 2020, which sounds nice to many of us, I know. And while we may be looking forward to the new year, let's not forget that every second we have is a blessing from God, and it's worth living. It really is. And many of us, I know, struggle with facing some of the challenges in our life, especially this year. Maybe even facing, you know, some of the reality of our sin. And at times, maybe we don't even believe that we are sinning. Perhaps we're in denial of the sin that plagues our life, and instead of allowing God to, to affect our hearts and open them up to his amazing and, and glorious wisdom, we harden our hearts to God. We may even put a barrier up. Whether we know it or not, we'll put a barrier up and we'll decide to live on our own knowledge and in our own favor. And if we're not careful in our own stubbornness, we can harden our hearts. This is a great example is... I think a story many of us well know is Pharaoh and the Ten Plagues. Many of the passages in Exodus about this story seem to allude to the idea that God hardened Pharaoh's heart to make a point. And God makes that clear in Exodus 10, verse 1. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. God can do anything he wants. He can do anything he wants to fulfill his his promises and his purposes. And according to this verse in Exodus 10.1, it seems God had a hand in hardening Pharaoh's heart to show his power and and to show his might. However, some verses, for example, in Exodus 7, chapters 7 through 11, seem to say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, such as Exodus 8. And this is in verses 15 and verse 32, for example. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that There was a respite. He hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then verse 32, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. We see both acts here, both God and Pharaoh here, causing his heart to be hardened. But this is a unique situation where both God is being glorified and his purpose is being fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled the way that he sees fit. So no matter what, God is in control. He's in control and he does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. God gave Pharaoh options and choices, you know, to do right or to do wrong. And every time Pharaoh chose wrong, his heart became stubborn and hardened. But if we think for a second, 
If we put ourselves in Pharaoh's shoes and we try to understand how he may have hardened his heart because of the pride that was boiled up in him against God, if we're not careful, we can fall into that same trap. We can allow pride to get the best of us and to harden our hearts against God. For example, we might find enjoyment in a certain sin to such a degree that we ignore everything important in our life. Not our family, but this sin. We might even hold a grudge against God for maybe a certain tragic event that happened in our life. We could even be blinded by a sin and unknowingly harden our hearts away from God. But James 4 verse 6, however, gives us some encouragement by saying, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pharaoh was proud, and God opposes the proud. The miracle of God's grace is that it has the power to change our lives and fundamentally change who we are for the better. God's grace can soften the hardest of hearts. And by miracle, when I say miracle or, or I'm saying miraculous, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you know, healing limbs or anything. I'm saying what only God can accomplish, not man, what only God can accomplish And so if we think about a scientific example for a second, we know it's easier to break a a hard substance when it's broken into smaller pieces. Oftentimes, it's God's grace that softens our hearts by breaking it down and, and restoring a broken heart. And when our heart is broken, we're more apt to allow God's grace to have the impact its power has in our life. And if we can do this, we can do this, well then... God's grace can, it can teach us and train us how to live a more faithful life. I like to think of grace kind of like fuel in a way. If we don't put fuel in our car or an engine, it never goes, right? It's what, it's what keeps everything moving. Not that we're filled with it like we are with the Holy Spirit, but that it gives everything purpose and meaning. What good would a car be if it never took us anywhere? We never got where we needed to go and it just stayed stationary. It'd be, it'd be no point. You see, because of God's grace, we can enjoy things like God's forgiveness, God's love, God's mercy, God's salvation. It's the reason why we have life. And it's the reason why God doesn't destroy us, but he continues to allow us to live. God's grace can be a motivation for us to become more Christ-like. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles open, Titus 2. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Here Paul encourages Titus. He's a young preacher, and he encourages him with God's grace, saying, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Key word there is training, training us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly. The question is, how does, how does grace do that? How does grace do that? Through the examples of those living godly lives, those who have been moved by grace to be godly and faithful servants, 
those who have experienced God's grace and taken a 180 from their sin and turned to God. Now, there is only one that has appeared, as it says, one that was perfect and by grace brought salvation for all people. That's Jesus. If there is anyone who is the perfect embodiment of grace, it's Jesus. God saw all the evil in this world, and instead of just erasing humankind from existence, he sent his son to die by our evil actions, so that despite those evil actions, God's grace may abound. We are only blessed now because of that sacrifice, to to continue living. The question is, are we just going to squander this life? Are we going to waste it? Or by the shelter of God's grace, are we going to work to extend his kingdom? I think a great example of someone who extended God's kingdom because of God's grace was Paul. Keep a marker in Titus. We'll be back there. But turn with me to Acts 9. Acts 9. For those who don't know or maybe don't remember, Paul was a faithful servant, a faithful servant of the old law, and he saw Christians as this heresy to his faith, this encroachment on his faith. And his heart was hardened. He didn't like it. And in turn, he went about persecuting Christians. And on, his, on the road to Damascus, on his way to Damascus, he was going to go persecute more Christians. But Jesus appeared to him, and it caused him to go blind, and Jesus said to turn from his ways. You see, Paul's heart was softened, and it was softened the day Ananias taught him salvation in Christ, and that starts in verse 10. Acts 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, verse 11, Go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, placed his hands on Saul, and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, his strength returned. And then this is important. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, This man is the Son of God. Now, some might say, well, yeah, that's just miraculous, you know, because he saw Jesus. And while that is amazing, we have to remember even Judas saw many miracles of Jesus and still betrayed him. What's miraculous about Paul was the complete change in his life. And we can still have salvation today, just as we read about Paul, and by the same means. We are called by Jesus, like in verse 15, and we can turn away from our past life, like Paul here. And we can allow God to wash away our sins, calling on his name. Verse 18, he got up and was baptized. And then what did he do? He immediately went and proclaimed Jesus. That is an amazing transformation. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, in, in humility here, talks about being the last to see Jesus after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 through 11. 
This says in verse 8, Last of all, as to the one untimely born, he appeared to me also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. When we read this, I can't help but feel the humility Paul has here. Remember what James said? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Paul's being humble here. Paul was right, though, by all human standards, when he said in verse 8 that he was unworthy to be called an apostle. You see, the standards of this world, it leaves no room for grace. And instead, it just judges us based on our actions and not our heart. So what makes God's grace so significant is the healing power it has because God knows our heart. He knows if we have a genuine heart. Grace, which is the undeserved favor of God, it abounds from a genuine heart, a broken and contrite heart that wants to be healed. And this is the miracle that changes lives and glorifies our Creator. No human can change the heart of any man or woman the way that our Creator can, the way that our God can. And so when James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, he's actually quoting and alluding to Proverbs 3, verse 34. Proverbs 3, 34, side note, Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 5. But in Proverbs 3, 34, it says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Now, both verses are very similar. We have to remember that Proverbs here is written in Hebrew and James and Peter are writing in Greek. And so when we look at these interpretations, we have to remember to look at these holistically. When Solomon says in his proverb, instead of using the word grace, he uses the word favor. God's grace, in a sense, is his favor. We want to be in God's good graces. God's favor is something that we should all want. Right? Just, like a, just like a child longs for the favor of his or her parent. Unfortunately, sometimes they never get it. You know, Often trying to get our parents' favor determines what we do or what we have done. Holding a grudge, not holding a grudge. Remembering things, things that happen. But having God's favor, that should motivate us to be better and more passionate about his purpose. Paul, who's writing in Titus and, and 1 Corinthians, experienced God's favor when he didn't even deserve it. Paul was seeking out other Christians and persecuting other Christians, as it says, persecuting the church of God. And God said, yeah, I'm going I'm to use him. He's going to be an instrument of mine. Of all the people God extended grace to, it was Paul. And you can tell that Paul is humbled by this experience as he expresses in 1 Corinthians 15. And what does he do? Well, like a parent motivated to do good for their children, I mean, for their parents' favor, Paul is moved by God's grace, by the grace he extended to him. And in turn, verse 10, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10? I worked harder, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
Because of the grace God showed Paul, that resulted in mercy and salvation, and Paul was determined to work harder and to become zealous for God's purpose. So if we look back at Titus 2, you should have a marker there in Titus 2. Titus 2, verse 11. Because Paul has the favor of God, he no longer desires the things of this world or or ungodliness. Instead, the grace of God instructs him to be self-controlled, to be righteous, and to be godly, as it says in verse 11, to have God's favor is, is to be saved, and vice versa. Once we're saved, we're then equipped with a faith in our Savior. And this should naturally, having a faith in our Savior, should naturally spur us on to do great works for Jesus. As it says in Titus 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us, to purify for himself, that's Jesus, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. With self-control and with righteousness, we should be doing good works with our faith, and we should be doing them passionately because of God's grace. Grace, the the undeserved favor of God, resulted in our ability to walk by faith, just as it was for Paul. The question is, what kind of faith results in a proper response to God's grace? And let's turn to James 2. James 2, verses 14 through 17. James 2, we looked at James 4. Let's get James 2, 14 through 17. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let me give you an illustration on faith and works for a second. Right? We all have thoughts. We're all thinking. But if we do nothing with those thoughts... If we do nothing with them, we'll die with lost ideas and products and, and moments and memories and information. But if we take those thoughts, for example, and we commit them to action through plans and we create things with them, then we'll live with proof of everything that we've been thinking. Faith is very similar. If all we have is faith and we do nothing with that faith, then we'll go nowhere. We'll die with great potential, but we'll have accomplished nothing. Now, if we take our faith and we apply it to action, which are works, then we'll live for Christ. And we'll be proof that God's grace is powerful. And so if we continue in James 2, look at verses 18 through 20. It says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? We can flip that for a second. If you have no thoughts, for example, and you live life on a whim, you know, planning and producing action without any structure, well, then you're just going to have a chaotic life. Likewise, if we have a bunch of works and, and no faith, We have no purpose for anything we just did. Both are necessary. Both must work together, and both must be fueled by grace to accomplish his his purpose 
and glorify Him. This is what the Christian walk should look like from the point of salvation to eternity. And this is all accomplished by God's grace. We read about that in Ephesians 2. Turn with me to Ephesians 2 and look at verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, starting in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love verse 8. For by grace we have been saved through faith. If we believe the Bible is God's word, if we truly believe that, then we should view all texts from different parts and different books of the Bible as coherent, not contradicting each other. Does that mean then that we're sa- if we're saved by grace that faith doesn't matter? Well, no. Obviously, faith and what it results in does matter. Our works are a result of our faith, and we should be motivated to do them because of grace. If we do nothing with them, it's not that you know, we're saved by faith alone, but that we never had faith to begin with. If we truly have faith, then there should be no question because our work should just naturally show. It should naturally flow out as they should in the lives of all of his faithful servants. And so our passion, our zealousness, It doesn't end at our good works. Our mission continues until this life is over. God's grace should motivate us. Should motivate us our entire lives, not just at the beginning, but till the very end. Paul didn't stop at Damascus and was like, hey, this sounds good, I'm going to retire here and just do this faith thing. He didn't. He allowed grace to carry him through, step by step, mile by mile, city by city, and he ended up taking the gospel to most of the known world at that time, working to build God's kingdom soul by soul. Peter even encourages us in 1 Peter 5.10. 1 Peter 5.10, after saying in verse 5 that God gives grace to the humble, if we drop down to verse 10, it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace, as it says, has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Because of his grace and the gracious act of Christ, our Savior, our faith is now restored and strengthened and our salvation is confirmed. And it's established. And if we think back for a second at Pharaoh, we talked about him at the beginning of this lesson, and the Israelites as they're trying to escape Egypt, God was there to restore, confirm, and strengthen them and his people in the promised land. I mentioned this point too in our podcast, The Extra Mile, and the episode Prayer of Repentance. You should go check that out. It's pretty cool. But God was there. He was there for the Israelites. Among the complaining and grumbling and worrying, guiding them to the promised land. Pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. If God wasn't gracious to his people, if he didn't show favor to his people, that wouldn't have happened. They would have never made it to the land God promised them. 
But in the end, because of God's grace, despite the whirring and the grumbling, they made it. And God's will and purpose was fulfilled. God can do the same thing for us today in this present age. He can lead us to him into eternity where his dominion is established forever and ever. God's grace is our path toward eternity. The question is, are we willing to follow it? So if we turn over to 2 Peter 3, 17-18, as we close, 2 Peter 3, 17-18, it says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and, those who, and, and, lo, and lose your own stability. Verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. There is stability in our faith and a guarantee that it will lead to eternity because we are saved by grace through faith. And it's all thanks to our Savior, Jesus. Without Jesus, we wouldn't have grace, and therefore we wouldn't have faith and mercy and forgiveness. Without him, we wouldn't be able to soften our hearts and allow God to grant us salvation in eternity. Without Jesus, God's grace wouldn't motivate us to stay away from ungodliness and teach us what is godly living. Without Jesus, we wouldn't have grace to lead us into heaven because without Jesus, there's nothing. When Jesus was on the cross and he shouted, It is finished! That marked the beginning of us in our work here today. The miracle of God's grace is the life-changing gospel it's brought to our life. And so this morning, you would like to be a part of that kingdom. Now is the time. Don't wait for everything to work out in your life to know all the answers. Titus 2, 12 that we read earlier says, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. When? In the present age. Right now. Don't stay out of God's grace, but by faith, rest in his mercy and forgiveness, allowing his grace to soften our hearts. And if you understand, we'd like to accept the good news, the gospel of Christ, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, just as Paul was, and become a Christian. Come forward while we stand and we sing.